This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today, brinksmanship, messaging, and he said, he said. We'll break down the political theater of the debt limit and budget negotiations going on at the White House. Our guests, the insiders, insiders. John Fury, former communications director, to Speaker of the House, Denny Hastert, and before that, senior aide to the Hammer, Tom DeLay. And from the other side of the aisle and the other side of the Capitol, Uber Democratic Communications Advisor, Jim Manley, former senior advisor, to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid for the last six years, and before that, longtime aide to the late Senator Ted Kennedy. And then we'll speak to the president of Generation Opportunity, Paul Conway, on why and how his new organization, Aid Young Americans, is so successful at cutting through the political clutter. But first, I'm joined, as always, by Josh King. Today, in the same studio here in Washington, D.C., Josh, the co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, as I was production chief in the George W. Bush White House. And it is, as always, great to see you here, Josh. Great to be with you, Adam, as always, uh, and and to actually work with you here in the studio in Washington, D.C. of uh, Sirius XM uh, incredible facility and uh, it brings polyoptics to life. It does. The, we are lucky to use the magic of radio and the power of Sirius XM and POTUS to bridge that gap between New York and Washington every week. But it is a great pleasure to have you in studio. This has been a heck of a week. I mean, the politics is at a fever pitch, but the discussion is not the 2012 elections, Josh. It's all about what many are calling an impending fiscal crisis, a potential downgrade of our economy and our creditworthiness. And the president is really in a tough spot right now. Yeah, well, I don't know if he's... I think both the president and Congress are in a tough spot. People are distrusting government, uh, and they're looking to the stagecraft and and the statements that are coming out from the White House and the cabinet room where a lot of these meetings are being held now, the stakeout outside the West Wing, uh, the leaking of of what's happening inside these meetings. Um, This is a week, Adam, and we've talked in past weeks when the campaign is is starting to uh, to get hot about incredible events held out in the hustings and the stagecraft of of modern politics but this is this is a week where the sets and the settings are become quite confined one room the cabinet room one place the stakeout there's not a lot of visuals going on except this interesting body language and sometimes uh, uh, um, wardrobe decisions about ties or no ties uh, for the photo ops. Yeah, I can tell you, uh, as you well know, but for uh, the audience, uh, you know, trying to put together these kinds of meetings on a regular basis, really unprecedented in the White House, the cabinet room, a really important and really ornate, beautiful room uh, overlooking the Rose Garden, but not exactly the place that you would have a meeting of this order of magnitude every day for an entire week. These negotiations are really resting on uh, relationships at this point. The politics 
very clear. Uh, the threats, the ability to walk away at a moment's notice has ratcheted up the tensions. But just off the Oval Office, the president makes his way, even without walking out into the hallway, into the cabinet room. And, uh, you know, you can always tell, Josh, where the president sits in these things, because the boss's chair has got a higher back than the rest. Just by a couple inches. Just by a couple inches, but just enough to let you know. And those chairs, people might be interested to know, all have the names of the cabinet secretaries. And And the date that they took their office. Exactly right. So it's a very important and very uh, special room in the White House. And when you bring in congressional leaders and they do that pool spray where they bring in the press... You know, it's usually smiles, but we're getting a pretty good sense that it's anything but when the cameras and reporters are gone. That's right. I mean, it, any pool spray, and the cabinet room is not that big when you fill it up with uh, people at their t- at their seats and then the, the back benchers that fill the periphery of it. Then you bring in a pool of uh, 15 reporters, White House television, stenographers, and the place becomes a sweatshop pretty fast, and it doesn't feel comfortable in those settings. Sometimes it's all laughs. Uh, it was certainly ra- laughs when Ronald Reagan would have Tip O'Neill to his right uh, and George Mitchell to his left, and there'd be a, a bowl of jelly beans in front. Not today. Not now, this week. You know, if you're a super insider and you and you are a big fan of POTUS, as we are, uh, you'd hear uh, a lot of discussion about some of the angst that the press is going through. They have been uh, reduced to just print ranks because the president apparently is just sick and tired of having people yelling questions. Typically, the boss will say a few words when people come in, everyone will be smiles, as we said, and then they'll be ushered out. But uh, in days like this, where you have editorial presence, people will certainly shout questions at the president, and it's a little bit uncomfortable not answering them when it happens day after day, Josh. Yeah, uh, well, presidents have to get used to those uncomfortable minutes when the questions are being shouted and you're finished talking, and it's up to people like me and you in our old roles uh, to say thank you, thank you, and, and begin to usher the pool out, because then you have to... If the sleeves aren't already rolled up, they then get rolled up. Uh, the seats get reconfigured, uh, and the and the meeting isn't, begins. Isn't that interesting? That uh, and that's a very very true uh, and very insightful comment that you made because these these meetings, folks, are completely staged for the cameras at the beginning. And you know what? That's not the way the room looks when they're actually talking because you want to picture a relationship shot of the president with his his uh, leadership from either side on on either arm. But frankly, they're sitting across the table and negotiating in a way that would be more comfortable. But we have some great guests today, uh, real insight into what the messaging and the communications elements are. Uh, some people who have been uh, in these positions, top advisors to leadership on the Hill. On the Democratic side, Jim Manley, who spent the last six years as a senior communications advisor to the Senate majority leader, Harry Reid, and before that, a communications director to Senator Kennedy, and he came up under George Mitchell. And on the other side, a good friend of Jim's and somebody he's worked across purposes with, but somebody he has great respect for, John Fury, uh, who was the communications director for Speaker Dennis Hastert. Uh, John was the longest-serving communications director uh, in the House of Representatives for a speaker ever. Uh, Josh King, we, we've got two heavy hitters sitting before us, and I think the best thing we can do is try and make sense of what's going on in the communication shops on either side of Pennsylvania Avenue right now. 
That's right. I mean, it's been so long since actually I was working in the Clinton White House when we had similar controversies, but I could never remember the vitriol that that uh, of the level that was raised this week. I mean, I saw a, a, a tweet from Jake Tapper saying that in his 20 years of covering Washington, that he's never seen anything like this. And for me, up in New York City, watching this from afar, I actually think something serious is going on here. And I'm, I'm happy to be disabused about it. But as a normal citizen outside of Washington these days, it looks pretty dire. Yeah, Jim Manley and John Fury, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you. Hey, it's great to be here. John Fury, uh, this is potentially a very serious and unprecedented national fiscal crisis. We have had a week of unprecedented meetings with the Gang of Eight, the leadership, bipartisan, bicameral leadership on Capitol Hill down at the White House with the president, who apparently has just about had his fill of the non-progress coming out of these things. How serious is this from your perspective? <laughs> well, it's uh, it's pretty serious. You know, I th- I've seen I've seen worse. Uh, I remember when we were impeaching Bill Clinton. That, That's that was, right. That was a lot worse. Uh, that was a constitutional crisis. This is just kind of a numbers game. It's a numbers game because you have to get enough numbers to uh, pay off your debts. And then you have to get enough numbers to pay to, to pass it in both the House and the Senate, and so it's, it's as John Boehner said, as a Rubik's cube. Uh, Eric Cantor said uh, last week that nothing right now is going to pass the House, but eventually something will pass the House. Certainly not not all Republicans will vote for something, and neither will all Democrats. There'll be some sort of combination of uh, Republicans and Democrats that will have to pass something in both the House and the Senate. Nobody knows what that looks like right now. But, you know, I think that leaders on both sides of the aisle, both Republicans and Democrats, both senators and House members, both the White House and and the Congress, all the leaders understand that something's got to get done. And if they all agree with that premise, then something will get done. Now, you're going to hear from uh, people on both ends of the spectrum that this doesn't have to get done. But in the middle, where all the leaders actually reside, they understand that something has to get done. John, take us behind the scenes up on Capitol Hill when, uh, the obviously, this is an unprecedented week where in the Clinton years we would go weeks without a congressional leadership meeting. This week, uh, starting on Sunday with ties off in the cabinet room, uh, you started it and they've been meeting ever since, including getting quite testy. What goes on before the vans leave Capitol Hill to decide how we're going to deal with this meeting with the president? Well, first you'll have a meeting with your staff, and you'll try to figure out what is it the other uh, staffs are doing, <laughs> telling their members. So first you try, to, you try to figure out what you want to say. Then you want to figure out what you and your colleagues want to say. And then you want to figure out what you and your colleagues on the opposite side of the uh, Capitol uh, and the Senate, you all are trying to find a unified message. And that, frankly, that's very difficult because you have all kinds of members who have all kinds of ambitions and all kinds of things that they want to get done. And uh, they don't always agree. That's the one thing is that the senators and House members don't always agree. Members of the different leadership don't agree. They have they represent different factions. So, fr- frankly, you've you got to figure out what you want to say to the president before you get started. And Jim, uh, coming from the Senate side, as you traipse to down Pennsylvania Avenue toward the White House, you only have a couple opportunities to get your mm-hmm. message out. You have what's called the pool spray mm-hmm. in the cabinet room, and the president, you, people are usually deferential to the president. They let him speak first. A member of Congress sitting to the left and right of the president is lucky if they get words in. Then they go to something called the stakeout. Mm-hmm. And then what happens in this modern day and age about how, how else a member can get his or her 
her message out? Sure. Well, the first or the one thing that you missed is you first have to uh, escape all the reporters that are going to be waiting for you when you walk out of the door to get into the car to go down to the White House. The downside of having a public meeting with the president is that uh, the reporters have a pretty good idea when you need to leave to get down there. And so they were always waiting for Reed, trying to get in a few words. Uh, trying to get his current thinking before, uh, like I said, he took off to the White House. Reed isn't one to believe in telegraphing his punches too terribly much, so he'd usually just walk right past him, uh, the assembled reporting corps, um, get in the car and go down down to the White House. Uh, on the drive down, we'd go through the um, uh, go through the talking points, how and whether to do a stakeout uh, afterwards. Usually, when we'd go down to the White House, we'd think we're going to do a, a stakeout, but oftentimes or Sometimes we decided not to do it, you know, leaving the negotiations, leaving the negotiations private, uh, and between, uh, uh, you know, the leadership and the president. And then, if we did decide to do a stakeout, we'd huddle uh, in the reception room of the White House real quick, uh, go over the talking points, talk a little bit about the meaning, try and figure out who was going to say what, and then I'd bring them out to the stakeout. We take about three questions and get the heck out of Dodge. You know, this is a great vantage point. Uh, having you all sort of take us behind the curtain as we think about the optics and the political theater, because really the messaging and the way that these leaders communicate, when they do it, how they do it, how much they disclose about what's gone on in these meetings, is very critical to the buy-in from the public. And I think that what we've seen of late is that this has been a story that is dominating. And so people are starting to wake up to it. They may not fully understand it, but they do get this very fundamental sense that we're spending more than we have, the credit card is maxed, and we've got to get the limit raised, or we just got to stop spending. And the president, I think, has tried very hard to to, to throw different kinds of messaging at the uh, wall and see what will stick. There's one bite in particular uh, where the president used some pretty bold language talking about uh, holding the American people hostage. Let's listen to this. I want to hear what you think about this kind of rhetoric. The debt ceiling should not be something that is used as a gun against the heads of uh, the American people to extract tax breaks for corporate jet owners. Okay, Jim Manley, put your polyoptics hat on here. This is really harsh rhetoric. The president has, even in the last week, gone to a very different length and a much softer, more on well, resort. And first, did you have a polyoptics hat? Because I'd like one. <laughs> yeah, no, we're going to get that to you, John. That's part of your party gift. Thanks for joining the broadcast. But, but Jim, seriously, the president of the United States is talking about holding a gun to the head mm-hmm. of the American people. Uh, well, did this work or did this not work? Well, I think it did work, um, and I think it was uh, probably a, 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 a long past time for him to make such a move. I mean, take a step back. Uh, what's the predicate for those statements? And that there was rising concern on both the uh, Democratic caucuses on Capitol Hill and amongst uh, many Democrats that the president, uh, A, had uh, not forcefully inserted himself into the process enough, and B, and had been uh, far too, uh, you know, accommodating towards the um, uh, Republican demands. And so he finally, you know, stepped up and laid it all out uh, at that press conference. And again, for many, probably myself included, I think it was a long time, you know, it should have been done a little bit well, earlier. He, you know what? He tried it once, Josh. He didn't use it again. And it felt to me like small ball. This whole thing's not about tax breaks for people who have corporate jets, is it? 
Well, I mean, this is this is about a guy trying to cement his legacy before the election season begins. And it's interesting, Adam, we haven't talked a lot about where this began, uh, an incredible polyoptics moment at Andrews Air Force Base golf course, right? The president, the golf summit, the golf summit, uh, the president, Speaker Boehner, uh, gov- uh, Governor right. Governor Kasich, and Vice President Biden, and it was dismissed at the time as something that was purely a photo op. While uh, Ian McElroy was tearing up the field at Congressional in the U.S. Open, but it turns out that it does begin a real dialogue that continues to this day. And I'm wor- wondering, John, there was that sort of casual mo- casual hours in the golf course, then the casual weekend the first meeting, and now it's got vitriolic. Uh, where do you see this going? Well, you're going to have, um, I mean, you're, you're right about the, the that moment uh, on, on the golf course. I think it did us help establish uh, a relationship that, that Boehner and Obama ultimately be the ones who will be trying to construct a deal. Uh, and I think it was useful publicly for them to, to do that. Uh, but, you know, you're going to have, the problem you have is neither Obama's uh, political base nor Boehner's political base completely trust them. And so what you'll have to do is both Boehner and Obama are going to have to make dramatic uh, movements towards their base, sometimes in dramatic language. You heard that with the corporate jet language. And then you hear uh, Boehner saying the same thing about, no, we're not going to raise taxes and you're crazy if you think we, we are. And this is a, an effort to let both bases know that you can trust us. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that they trust them. And, you know, as we saw with Eric Cantor, who, you know, tried to squash this grand bargain, which I think is squashed now. You know, this is this is very delicate. And, you know, this is a big kabuki dance. Ultimately, they have a deadline they've got to meet. And ultimately, I think they're going to make it. Well, this brinksmanship, you know, nothing happens in Washington, it seems, without a deadline. You know, if we're not up against it. We're not going to get there. Uh, nothing happens in life without a deadline, Adam. Well, <laughs> especially in the United States Senate. <laughs> well, you know, you, you can say that, and I, and I think that there's a lot of truth to that. But there is a, a great sense, I think, on the part of average Americans that these guys just don't get their work done unless there's something catastrophic that will come about if they don't. But what I really want to get to the point. Uh, with you, John, is that you work for a Speaker of the House. The role of the Speaker of the House is not the majority leader of the conference in the House. Eric Cantor, uh, who is the majority leader, and John Boehner, the Speaker, have two different jobs, two different roles to play. Help us dig in here. People have said that Eric Cantor has completely undercut John Boehner, and people have gone on to say that Mitch McConnell, the minority leader in the Senate, has undercut both of them. How on the same page can they be, and how are you as a former communications director to a Speaker of the House thinking this is going in terms of you know the, the, the Cantor communications? Well, I, I, I remember uh, very vividly when I worked for Tom DeLay, and Newt Gingrich, the speaker, and uh, they had a rule that you know Gingrich could not go down to the White House with Clinton without Dick Armey accompanying them because they were afraid that Newt Gingrich would cut a deal. And you know Newt Gingrich is not exactly Mr. Moderate. You know he's not Mr. Liberal. He's actually pretty much of a firebrand conservative. But people were worried because he was the speaker, you know, and he represented the whole House. And that he was kind of accommodating because he saw the big picture, not just the the caucus, 
uh, or, or the Republican conference in this in this case, that uh, you know he does have a different role than than the majority leader. I think the same thing happened with us and and Tom Delay when we Delay was always kind of nipping at our heels from the right. And I think that the same thing with Cantor and and Banner. That's the the nature of the thing. The irony is that when Nancy Pelosi was the speaker, uh, Steny Hoyer was actually coming from uh, the 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 right himself. He was actually much more moderate than Nancy Pelosi, which made that kind of a a unique relationship. Uh, you know, I think do think that the the, the roles between the speaker. Uh, and, the, and the majority leader are, are different roles. But I also think it, all of politics is personality. And the roles kind of adapt to who the personalities are, and that's why you have a different dynamic with Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer that you had with Den- Denny Hastert and, and Tom DeLay. Mm-hmm. I agree with m- much of what John just said. I mean, uh, I'm a little bit maybe more pessimistic than he is about uh, the idea that we can reach some sort of compromise, but having been through any number of these um kerfuffles uh, over the years, uh, been through a lot of these uh, debates, seen the heated rhetoric, um, and, you know, I, I believe in the end, you know, common sense is going to prevail uh, and we're going to get something done. Uh, but, Josh, you raised a good point about the, uh, the you know, the limits of comedy and how, you know, I, I worked for, you know, worked on the Hill for 20 years and have seen a, a, a steady decline in the so-called comedy in the House and the Senate. Uh, politics have become much more uh, vitriolic, um, and I chalk that up in part to the fact that, given the, among other things the demands on members' times, the need to fundraise, right. folks don't uh, get to know each other as much as they should. You know, it's trite but true. It's always tough to demonize somebody. You know, when you've had a chance to go out to dinner That's with right. he and his wife. So That's right. I mean, gentlemen, the names that you've been associated in the past remind me so vividly of the time in the early Clinton years. When the ex-governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, comes to the White House, uh, doesn't have a lot of experienced Washington hands on his staff. People like uh, Democratic Chairman Bob Strauss reach out to him and try and broker a dinner at Duke Zebert's with him and Majority Leader Bob Dole and the thought that if they could just break bread together, they'll be they'll be uh, be able to work together. And I think it was at some point that Dole said, I'm not going to let, let you get anything passed. And then skip ahead a couple of years, and Newt Gingrich becomes Speaker of the House. And I was shocked one day when uh, uh, Don Baer, the White House Communications Director, came to my office and said, you got to get to New Hampshire because Clinton and Gingrich are going to do a town hall together. And there actually was a, a, lot, of, uh, a, a lot of common ground found on that, on that lawn with all those seniors in Laconia, New Hampshire. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how things have changed and if you have me- any memories of when things were a lot better. Well, I, I worked. Uh, uh, my first job was with Bob Michael, and uh, Michael and uh, when the, the then Speaker Tom Foley had a very good relationship. Michael and Tip O'Neill used to golf together uh, almost every weekend, so they had a, a very good working relationship. Of course, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, you know, famously had beers after after work. All that was more legendary than actual fact, uh, but they wanted that image to get out there because I think at the end of the day, you really want competition. But you also want some sort of uh, common purpose, and I and I think that uh, you know there is uh, partisanship. There always has been, and, and there always will be, uh, and that tends to be healthy uh, as long as it doesn't become vitriolic. Uh, you know, I, I do think that it's it's tough now. But what what's really tough is not so much uh, the uh, 
parties themselves. It's the people from the outside hating the people on the inside. And what's fascinating to me is seeing really the rise of the Tea Party, who have pretty much turned all the convention conventions of Washington on on their head. And they, they just don't believe whatever Washington is selling. And that is really the bigger challenge. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell and Terry Reid can agree all they want, as can John Boehner and, and, and Barack Obama. The problem is that people outside the, the Beltway don't trust government anymore. And that's that's a bigger and more fundamental problem. Agreed uh, on that. And then for me, it's, you know, I had a chance to work for Ted Kennedy uh, uh, for 11 years, the master legislator, a someone who I believe will go down the history books as one of the, the greatest centers in this century or any other, rivaling that of Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun. I say that apropos of nothing except for, you know, he got things done and the smart Republicans always understood that if you worked with Kennedy, A, you'd have a fun time, B, you got things done, and C, uh, whatever press you did, you get a lot of it because the guy knew how to attract TV cameras like no other. That's because he had you, right? Yeah, I was gonna, <laughs> I'll take a little bit of credit for that. Um, so, uh, but, you know, unfortunately, it, it that's somewhat uh, dying in this day and age. And, you know, we another show just about um, the rise of the Internet and the blogs and the influence of the Tea Party types and other outside groups uh, funded by all this money that's slashing around has made politics uh, uh, much more difficult. But the good news is the Senate is still run by two institutionalists and Senator Reid and Senator McConnell, uh, two wildly different people. Uh, I defy you to find two different people that talk less, except for maybe former Speaker Hastert, than those two. I'm not talking together, but I mean, they're both not known for a lot of uh, uh, public speaking. But, you know, they both in the end believe, uh, you know, uh, in the idea of getting things done, uh, though sometimes it's not going to be very easy and oftentimes very difficult. Polyoptics, you're listening to uh, Josh King and Adam Belmar. Uh, in studio here in Washington today, joined by John Fury, former communications director, Speaker of the House, somebody who also advised the hammer, Tom DeLay, and others in Republican leadership over the last decade, and Jim Manley, uh, Democratic communications guru on the Hill, somebody who has worked so closely with the Senate Majority Leader for six years, just left that office recently, and uh, was with, as, as he just said, Senator Kennedy um, before that. But I, I want to turn the discussion, Josh, to this idea that the 2012 campaign is one that will either continue to have so much of this as an issue to battle over or whether people will be tagged with the failure to get something done and it will plague them, as the president reportedly said, uh, in, in moving out of one of these meetings in a, in a quick and somewhat uh, upset fashion that, that this may tank my presidency, but I'm not going to give in here. Uh, where are we from an optics perspective? The 2012 campaign that was surging with the addition, it seemed, every week of people on the Republican front, Josh King, has sort of settled down a bit. And here we are uh, with a whole lot at stake in the coming election year, but really this is serious policy. Yeah, it, it feels like there has been a, uh, a a berm between the activities that are happening in Washington so far and the preliminary activities out on the campaign trail, mostly where Republicans are trying to posi- distance themselves from each other uh, on the sort of second tier of candidates and uh, and not so much 
focused on what's happening in Washington. But I did see a very interesting uh, pivot uh, that was mentioned today. You know, I, I followed Mitt Romney's campaign a good deal in 2008. I was fascinated by his use of online video uh, and technology. And it was mostly about Mitt, about what a great manager Mitt was, about what a great governor and an overseer of the of the Salt Lake City Olympic Games. But what you see today on his website, about a three-minute beautifully produced piece, is a piece about a real estate uh, firm in Rochester, New Hampshire. Used to have 40 employees. Now it has two, him and his wife. And he just had to file for personal bankruptcy this week. And the reference is Obama isn't working. And so I think of, of the whole field, Mitt, well, we've talked in previous weeks, Adam, about how uh, Michelle Bachman had a Bafo debut and John Huntsman was beginning to get some traction. Mitt seems to have sort of taken on the front runner's mantle and is using both in the rhetoric that he comes out of his mouth and also the, the technology that he's using and he's putting online, a very crafty way of, of blaming Obama for economic ruin in places like Rochester, New Hampshire, where where the 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 uh, crisis has taken a huge effect. Jim Manley, uh, the president's got a lot at stake here. Obviously, you know there are certain uh, advantages to being the incumbent in a presidential race, but uh, he he's literally got uh, something enormous hanging in the balance. And having this go south, no decision, uh, the worst case scenario coming true. Uh, the president in a, in a faltering economy where jobs remain the number one issue and we don't get good news on a monthly basis, this is just absolutely right over the edge. This this could push him right over the edge. Very much so. I think um, two of the people with the most to gain from this uh, potential deal are President Obama and um, uh, Speaker Boehner. John Fury, though, if you... If you listen to the communications, to the messaging, and to the rhetoric that we hear this week, I have discerned a softening for the president. He is trying to connect himself to the American people. On Tuesday, he said this. We have these high-minded pronouncements about uh, how we've got to get control of uh, the deficit and how we owe it to our children and our grandchildren. Well, let's step up. So, John, the president realizes that this must be something that connects with people because all of these serious cuts, wherever they end up playing out, are going to affect communities and they're going to have a serious impact on quality of life. Do you agree with that? Well, look, you know, this is not just about the 9.6% of the population that doesn't have a job. And it's not just about the 18% that are underemployed and don't have all the job that they want. It's really about the whole country and about for Obama but at least 51% of the country, and how do they feel about, the, is Obama fighting for them? And is he, does he, is he instilling confidence that he has a plan for the future? And it's, 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 a, it's uh, yes, it's about the economy, but it's also about the future for my family, for my children. You know, can I get my kids into college? Does Obama understand, really understand what I'm going through? And the, the 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 big fact out there is that, and this started with Bush. I get that, uh, but it's the the Obama economy now, and that is we've been outside the Beltway in a uh, what can be called a depression. Uh, people are really hurting out there, and worse, they've lost faith in the future. Now, they when they voted for President Obama, they were voting because they believed that he had a plan, but they also voting to make themselves feel good. So the next election, do they if they cast that vote? Do they once again 
think that they're making the right vote not only for their future but because it makes them feel good? Or, or are they going to vote as a protest against what has not been accomplished, what has not occurred, what has not had, do we still have you know the confidence in the future? Uh, and so um, that I think Obama's got to start talking about that. He's got to be talking about fighting for the middle class. And I think that's the big failure of the Palenti campaign, for example. You know, he has the, probably the best messaging on fighting for the middle class, and he's completely ignored that messaging. And I think what he's what he's quoted as saying what he was quoted as saying this past week was. Uh, as he was getting ready to walk out of one of those meetings was, I'm going to take it to the American people. That's what President Obama said. Jim Manley, John Fury, uh, a really insightful conversation. We appreciate it. It's it's exactly what we strive to do here at Polyoptics. Uh, I hope both of you gentlemen will come back. And just as a point of full disclosure, I work with John Fury at Quinn Gillespie and Associates. Um, having said that, John, you represent a unique uh place in the Washington uh, sphere of influence, having done so much of what you've done on on that end of Pennsylvania Avenue. And uh, I guess the final word I will just say, never underestimate the bully pulpit of the presidency. He's the only one that got to sit down with uh, Scott Pelley of CBS Evening News and dominate that newscast. So you put your, 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 uh, your mouthpieces to work. But uh, the president can often carry the day. Gentlemen, thank you for being here on Polyoptics. Thank you. you. Jim, can you record the talk back? Record that. Josh, we spent uh, a fair amount of time talking on Polyoptics about the social media technologies and the channels that people are utilizing that are really critical to successful political communication. That's right. I mean, we talked in a a previous segment about the way Mitt Romney is successfully using it. You know, Adam... I got my first iPad two months ago, and it has unchained me from uh, from my desktop. Uh, when I had when I just used my BlackBerry, it was really only for email, occasionally going on the web and surfing, but not using social media tools, not using Facebook and Twitter. And it wasn't until I really discovered the functionality of Twitter for iPad that it seemed to make so much more sense to me, and I really could sort of follow the the patterns of discussion from person to person to person and see where these tentacles were going to lead me into some really interesting ways. And so I think as more people are connected in this way and more people's uh, smartphones and iPads are replacing the television and I guess the radio for their, the means of which they're getting information, so the, the dissemination of, of information and opinion and persuasion through social media really is the way of of the future campaigns. You know, a lot of the experts will tell you that 2008 was sort of the social media campaign era, but the technology, like what you're talking about with these mobile devices, is really making 2012 the mobile campaign era. These these, uh, social media technologies are suddenly available to us everywhere we go and in a really fundamentally different way than they were before that connectivity that ability to reach out and touch or to coalesce people around you know meetings or events and and get the message out it's there but it's so much deeper uh with regard to the kind of experience that people can have um i called you up what i think it was like a week ago and i said hey i've got this friend who's really pioneering in this space and he's sort of deep into the mobility 
of this kind of stuff. And we're lucky enough to have him in the studio with us today. Paul Conway is the president of a new organization called Generation Opportunity. Paul, you and I go back. Uh, we both served uh, in the in the Republican administration, the George W. Bush administration. You were the chief of staff at the Department of Labor. You, you've also spent years at the Department of Homeland Security. But right now, you're involved in a nonpartisan effort to educate uh, voters uh, across the nation and get young people to re-engage and be a, a big force in the coming election. Welcome to Polyoptics. What, what's your uh, what's your objective here with, with Generation Opportunity? Well, I'll tell you what, Adam. Thanks a lot. It's an honor to be on your show. Uh, the objective is pretty simple. It's uh, go out and deliver a message to folks uh, that we think they're pretty receptive to. We're a new 501c4 organization, as you mentioned, um, nonprofit, nonpartisan, we're going out pretty boldly on three major principles. One, economic opportunity. Two, less government. And three, uh, more personal freedom. And we're hitting folks uh, on the space where they are and using the technology that they're accustomed to. So we were just talking about uh, Facebook. We're out on Facebook. We have a Facebook page called Being American. On that page right now, we've got close to 820,000, I believe. That's an amazing number. Yeah, no, wait, hold on a second. You've got almost a million people. How long have you guys been up for? We've been publicly out uh, for about six weeks. Wow. And uh, for our strategy, what we did is we took a look at what has worked on the right and the left, and uh, we've very consciously uh, stepped forward, took the lessons of both, and built a strategy, and uh, went immediately out on Facebook. And we're introducing new elements of that strategy as we go along. But we built it, and it has taken off. It has gone viral. I'll give you one quick example. On, on July 4th alone, uh, over that three-day weekend, we picked up 120,000 new fans. So we're out there talking to folks. We post articles on the right and the left, let them come to their own conclusions about what's going on in Washington, what's going on with their tax money, and most importantly, what is denying them future economic opportunity and future jobs. What What is the secret sauce that's getting people to come online? How are people communicating Generation Opportunities message and being being American from college campus to college campus or people in their first jobs in the workforce? Why are they coming to this? It's interesting. Uh, I have a background in, in political personnel and, and human resources, and I'd like to give credit to my staff. We've got a fantastic staff of 13. Uh, they are top guns in their field on social media. They're great about it. So they know how to take uh, information products from think tanks, research universities, the news, and write it in such a way and tag it so that when it goes up, people understand it and it's immediately relevant. But what we think is going on here is that there is such a frustration out there about the lack of opportunity and lack of jobs that people want a trusted source they can go to, they can kind of make up their own mind. And if all their friends are on it, they start seeing these things they want to join too. One of the things that I think in this realm uh, people talk about or, or, or the press will ask questions about where is the money coming from are you all soliciting funds from people who are members are there corporate donors how did did operate uh, generation opportunity come about what did it coalesce around and who's funding it well i tell you what, it came together as a concept um probably about a year ago and uh, a couple of folks that i had known and worked with for a while reached out to me and said look is this something that you think you can take from concept to reality and i said sure with a certain degree of latitude on staffing and on finance. It's a 501c4, so we honor donor intent. If they want confidentiality, I'll honor that. Um, I will tell you right now, I'm a donor myself. Um, several other folks I know will be coming forward to say they're donors. And what you'll see us moving into is a space on text messaging and text donation with the folks that are out there who are fans and who are interested. I haven't turned on that button yet because we're, we're doing it in a very staged uh, manner. But I think that we'll be very popular, and I think that we'll be able to uh, raise funds. 
Josh, one of the things that uh, that I do in my professional life is I deal in this space too. And you know, to to get this kind of reaction, you really have to have not only first rate content, and it's got to be relatable and something that people can share, and it's got to be well calibrated. But you also has to spend money to market yourself, to do advertising, to push your name and what you're about out there into that stream, so to speak, so that people can find you. Um, this is something that uh, is big business in, in politics right now. Should you think people uh, who, who come to this stuff, Paul and Josh, uh, when they're looking for a trusted source, need all the answers up front, or they just find like-minded people? Is there a, a, a way to sort of be transparent enough to say, hey, I've got Democratic friends or Republican friends, or this is not political, this is larger than that? Well, that's that's the core idea of Facebook and Twitter, isn't it? That that I, I could either go to a mass source, I could watch the NBC nightly news with Brian Williams, I could read the New York Times, and that's those are decisions made about the content that that editorial team uh, at the newspaper or at the broadcast network think I ought to know about. If I if I see who a person a friend of mine is friends with on Facebook, or is following on Twitter. Uh, and I say, well, I, I respect Adam Belmar. I, I want to see the kind of people that he follows or the kind of people that follow him. And this has to be my tribe in one way or another. And that's how these things germinate. So I think Paul pro- is definitely on to something. If, if he's trying to provide a certain uh, stream of information about uh, economic opportunity for young people, uh, he must have found that um, they weren't getting what they needed to get elsewhere or they were tuning it out because let's face it uh nightly news is is populated by you know the demographics of the people who are watching the evening newscast these days you know who's watching are these the, morning the people shows. who are buying flomax in large volume <laughs> that's right <laughs> okay so i think i think people sort of uh, uh end around that a lot the the young core demographic that you're trying to hit right paul absolutely one of the things that we've done is we've gone out to places where they are. So not only on social media platforms, but we physically actually go out. We were down last week at the LULAC convention in Ohio. And uh, before that, we were down in New Orleans at a big volunteer conference. And the reaction to folks when they see our booth and our branding and everything like that is fantastic. It's, it's very hip graphics. But what really draws them is the message of, hey, somebody's out there and they're actually concerned about how much is being spent why they don't have jobs, and we're a source of information for them for what's going on. They are trust there, it. Are there actions? I mean, are there things that, that, that you can give people to do? Or, you know, is, is this really uh, something that just sort of revolves around the more academic? And then secondarily, I'd ask you, you know, what are you guys doing in the visual realm? Are you producing videos? Are you connecting with people in, in, in a way beyond the written word? Uh, I'm glad that you asked on video. That will be coming soon. Um, as a matter of fact, we were at one event uh, earlier this year, and we had nearly every single presidential candidate, when they saw our staff and they saw what we were doing, wanted to be interviewed by us. So we have a lot of video in the can that will be coming forward. Um, I think it will be popular with folks on both sides of the aisle. But in terms of uh, the connections and that type of thing, uh, people respond. If you're standing there and you have an iPad and you want to register them up, you want to do a quick survey on stuff, folks are more than willing to tell you their opinion. And then they want to go and grab a couple of friends at an event and lock on there too. But stepping back a little bit, in terms of building our audience and our fan base, as part of our strategy, we were very deliberate in lining up um, our key relationships with major stakeholder organizations. And so not only are we out there on social media and with a ground game, but we also work very, very closely uh, with institutions like Heritage Foundation, other ones around town, LULAC, 
uh, saying, hey, look, this is our product. This is who we're trying to reach. If you can refer people to us, you know, bring it on. We're trying to do as wide as possible and as deep as possible on as many different elements to hit 18 to 29. It, it is incredibly smart to think about affecting people at a younger age and giving them information at a younger age when typically they're just tuned out. Uh, what's the thought about, about beginning people on a lifetime of awareness of these issues uh, and a fact that people haven't really focused on the younger generation before in the past? Well, you raise an interesting point. As far as a lifetime, um, I want to make it perfectly clear. We're not just focused on 2012 or 2011. I think it's fundamentally important that if you go out and you reach somebody and you capture their interests, that you engage with them for a long period of time. Uh, I have previous experience at a university where we designed master's programs and other things. And if you can catch somebody's interest very early and get them intrigued by it and get them enrolled, you have them. Same thing with this. It's much faster. Um, and I think over a long period of time, if people educate themselves on issues, they're smart enough to come to their own conclusion on, on what should happen in Washington. Mm -hmm. Trust the people. Just give them a platform in which they can talk to each other and learn more information and working pretty well. I want to talk a little bit about the polling. You know, sometimes uh, when we get to uh, a campaign season, uh, polls come out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. And you can almost get any poll to tell you what you want to hear. And it's the ones that people pay closest attention to that, uh, that, that really you know, sort of solidify credibility. You guys have been doing polling and it's been sort of instructive to you and you've been sort of ratifying it with your audience, I think, uh, of what people are thinking and how they're feeling out there. Talk to us a little about what you guys have been learning so far. Sure. Uh, we did a uh, poll with Kellyanne Conway in the polling company and it has a, a margin of plus or minus 4%. And we went out and we did it over a seven-day period of time so that it was insulated against breaking news and that type of thing. We wanted to do it right. And what's interesting is 54%, uh, and, and it was a targeted thing for this demographic, 18 to 29, 54% believe America's on the wrong track. 77%, uh, and this was the fascinating thing for us, 77% had indicated that they're delaying major life decisions or purchases. And when you dive into that data, 44% are putting off buying a home. 28% are putting off retirement. Are, are putting off buying a home or just can't. You know how hard it is to buy a home today? This is not the home buyer show. And I'm not Susie Orman and I don't want to put on a jacket. But I'll tell you, coming up with 20% of that down payment and people who don't want to lend in the first place, you know, whether you're putting it off or you just realize you couldn't get it even if you wanted it, it's tough out there. Yeah, it's tough. And it's tough if you don't have a job or if you're not certain in your job or if you're in a job where you're not fully employing your skills. But going back to this, uh, the thing that really stunned us is 27 percent were saying they were putting off uh, student loan payments. And the other thing is 23 percent said that they're putting off starting a family and 18 percent said they're putting off um, having kids. But the one that brought my background from labor department into this is the number 27 percent say they're delaying either going to school or getting additional training. So where I think the long-term ripple is and where people make this connection is if they're not getting training and your country is going to be competitive we're trying to maintain a competitive stand against China and India, and your workforce doesn't have the resources or the confidence to get more training, you're actually looking at an issue and a ripple on this economy that's years out. So people might focus on what the deficit number is and the unemployment number now, but smart people ought to be thinking 10, 15 years from now. Now, what's the interesting thing about this? When you go and you ask millennials this question of national security and what they identify as the biggest threat to the United States, right, <laughs> 62% indicated uh, national debt. 61% um, indicated energy dependency. And then here's the real kicker. 50% indicated indebtedness to foreign powers. So in terms of making the connection with spending now 
mm-hmm. unemployment now, national position, and what it means for the country in the future, they make the connection. They totally understand this. And I think that's why our platform on Being American on Facebook is so popular because people are like, where, where can I go to talk to other folks about what this means for the future? Right. I mean, given your experience in, in the Labor Department and, uh, and education and in the university world, separating yourself a little bit from the organization, what do you think are the answers here? I mean, wh- wh- what, what does the country have to do to get the workforce ready to deal with issues in the coming decades? It, it may sound simple, but I really do believe that elected officials in Washington need to listen to these folks who are 18 to 29. Because what they're saying is we're not certain about the direction of the country. We don't have confidence. We have confidence in our own ability and our own skills. But overwhelmingly what they're saying is they favor stopping federal spending, cutting federal spending over raising taxes. They believe that cutting taxes on business profits increases the amount of hiring that will be done. So if you listen closely to this, I think some right. of the solutions coalesce around what they're thinking. So if they're, if they're connected with, if 800,000 of them are connected with each other through Facebook, how do they get their own voice in the coming campaign? I mean, people are not putting... That's a great point. People are not putting them on Meet the Press, Face the Nation, and This Week. People aren't putting them on on Morning Joe. Where is their voice going to come from so that older generations can hear what they're thinking? Well, I don't want to presume anything. They can pick and choose what they want, but I think we're going to be a very, very powerful platform for the voice of the 18 to 29s. And we intend to be that in 2011, and we will grow into a much bigger space for 2012. Uh, when you say you're going to be a powerful presence in 2012, is it help us understand? You know, what what's the call to action ultimately beyond education here, and how does it uh, rubber meet the road for these folks? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> getting out the vote. Yeah, I mean, what we what we plan to do is educate people over a long period of time, and then we will encourage folks to register in their state and turn out to vote. But we don't think that we have to be uh, like a campaign organization that hit people in the last two weeks heavy with TV or anything like that. Uh, our folks don't expect that. And they Are you gonna, it's it. going to be up there with television? I mean, we talked a little bit about video. That's something that's going to be part of the rollout. But are there, are there issue advocacy that will be out there or helping to pull people into the fold? How does that work for you? Uh, for us, uh, less television, I think, and more video. And uh, make it funny, make it relevant, and make it popular. And uh, give folks, you know, give folks in the medium that they want something that will capture their imagination and speak for them. And uh, that's exactly what we plan to do. I think folks will hear from us. You know, funny videos uh, or videos that that, that resonate with people, I love them. And they're getting to be much more uh, a part of our political conversation and a leverage of the visual um, medium. There's a video that I want to play for you right now that, that just came out today. Uh, it, it, it's entitled Lemonade Anyone, and uh, it was it was created by pe- the folks at Passcode Creative. They were the ones behind the videos for uh, uh, Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, um, and the, 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 they've been on polyoptics before. Let's have a listen to this and talk about it on the other side. Times have been tough around our house, so some friends and I decided to help out. When I heard mom and dad say the national debt was over $14 trillion, I had to do something. Dad said that's over $130,000 per family. We don't have that kind of money. Wow, we're going to need more cups. We're going to need more lemonade. Please don't raise the debt ceiling. Or we'll have to raise the price of lemonade. (laughs) Lemonade, anyone? 
lemonade anyone, Paul. <laughs> uh, you know, this is an ad that was put out, uh, or, or a video as such, for the American Grassroots Coalition. Uh, I think it's... Uh, it's clear where the politics is on this, but it really speaks to best practice. And it's something that I, I love the guys in their work, the way that they do this. They're masterful at it at Passcode mm-hmm. Creative. As I said, we've had them on the show before. But what was your reaction to it? And is this the kind of thing that you think is where uh, political communication in visual way needs to be? Sure. I mean, it's it's a, it's a raw format. It looks real. It looks like you just drove by a neighborhood lemonade stand. It's short. And it's got great dialogue on it, and the visuals are sharp and fantastic, and it's moving quickly. So for, for, for us, I'll give you an example. In-house, uh, we have the capacity to do this, and our folks are super creative. we got to tell them to go home at night at 11 o'clock because they were creating this stuff, and we have a whole can of it ready to go. And it's, it's just fantastic. It's fun watching them do it, and they'll do it all day. They'll do it 24 hours a day. You can go to Facebook.com slash being an American, uh, and you can find uh, Generation Opportunity on Facebook, but you can also go to generationopportunity.org, and it's sort of a landing page. It, right. it's, it's the first sense that people get on the web when they come to your organization. What does that do, and, and how do you take them forward from there, Paul? Sure. Um, for the splash page, it's generationopportunity.org. Uh, you just land right on it, and you can go ahead and sign up. We have our full website coming up here in about 60 days, and that'll be fantastic. They can get more information on uh, issues and, and sign up and activism. On the full website, they'll be able to gain points and that type of thing for taking different actions. And on the uh, Facebook page, on uh, it's called Being American. You search for it on Facebook. And on that page, you'll see two postings a day. One is kind of like a news posting. One is like a social posting. Interestingly, we just had a posting recently of a, uh, of a uh, lemonade stand. Uh, that was shut down by government officials. And we'll ask folks, like, what do you think about that? You know, it's a common sense thing. People are like, what if, what if officials running around with our tax dollars shutting down lemonade stands or telling a person in Chicago uh, someplace that they can't have something out in their front yard as a garden or whatever? You know, Is this, this goes to the personal freedom bucket. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, come Damn on. Damn straight. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, how many times have we been in a federal agency as a political appointee, whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, and you're sitting there, and you get some word from three floors down that somebody's doing something, right, and they're doing it in the name of your federal agency or the federal government, you just sit there and you say, wait a minute, go ask two people on the street, and would they actually do that? And the answer is no. It's just like, get real. But you see more and more of this stuff as people get more and more arrogant. And I think people are just sick of it. And so we give a platform for that voice as well. Uh, Paul Conway, uh, president of Generation Opportunity. You can find him on the web at generationopportunity.org or on Facebook at facebook.com slash beingamerican. Thanks for being with us today on Polyoptics. Thanks a lot, Adam. Appreciate it. A great interview with Paul Conway of Generation Opportunity, Josh. We did get some information from staff just after we finished that interview that the methodology on that poll was, in fact, Internet-driven. And one of the points they made, and I think you'll believe this because you have a big background in this stuff, is that when you're reaching younger Americans, that 18 to 29 set, a lot of them don't have home phones. Uh, yeah, the, and, and it's more and more of them are just operating only on their cell phones and it's not like a hello can I talk to the beaver please Mrs. Cleaver and she runs up and gets an 18 to 29 to talk you've got to hit them on the internet that's the only way to accurately survey this population well you've been in DC this week which has been a great treat uh, but I, I know that something caught your eye besides just the the circus ring in the in the cabinet room that's right you know the the White House is 18 acres and all of the lenses 
and all of the news coverage, so much of the news coverage has been focused on what's been happening in the cabinet room and the stakeout right on West Executive Drive outside the West Wing. But look, I, I can't help be struck but but be struck by what happened in the East Room. And we we rarely have the President of the United States bestow the, the highest uh, honor possible, the Medal of Honor, on a U.S. service person. It happened this week to Sergeant First Class Leroy Petri. Uh, his story is all over the Internet. Uh, he made the rounds. Did, uh, he's an incredible story of gallantry above and beyond, beyond the call of duty. He did a P, an interview which was partially on NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams last night. An extended version of that is online. But to see what uh, the way he's reacted, his prosthetic arm, the titanium forearm that he has, the people that died along that that died that day uh, that he that he uh, that he served, and the way he is responding and and using that arm and and coming back was just an incredible moment uh, of of valor and uh, and honor. And I was. Uh, it, I, I wish more attention had been paid to that. Let the guys talk more behind closed doors in the cabinet room. Well, you're you're absolutely great uh, to to bring that up because it was an important moment, and you know history books will record it. Uh, as I said, we're very lucky to be in the same studio today. I hope we continue to do this, and I know you and I are planning to take polyoptics on the road. Uh, it's great to have you in Washington, Josh. Thanks always, Adam. <laughs>